Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Everyone, welcome to the 110th episode of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. But today, we're going to deviate a little bit from our normal schedule to talk with Brian Feroldi, who is the writer for The Motley Fool. Uh, the Motley Fool is an investing advice company where contributors write about stocks, markets, and more. And Brian also shares a lot of his work on Twitter, where I personally started reading Brian's work. So Brian, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so before we hop into it, Brian can, uh, you know, and talk about all things investing. Can you just take a few minutes and tell everybody a little bit about yourself and how you got started uh, in the industry? Sure. I graduated from college in 2004 and was a business major in college, mostly because I had no idea what I wanted to do. When I graduated, I was taught, I realized that I was taught nothing about money, about finance, about the stock market. And again, I was a business major. Um, I took some basic classes on accounting. Some of my professors randomly mentioned the stock market, but that's all I knew. When I graduated, my dad handed me a copy of a book called Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And that was the first book that I ever read that introduced the concept of financial independence. Everybody is in business for themselves. The rich look at money differently than the rest of the world. You can build wealth in less than a generation if you think like an owner, et cetera. I don't fully agree now with all the concepts that are presented in the book, but that book just kickstarted an absolute love and an almost obsession with everything related to money, personal finance, and investing. And I've basically just spent the, next, the, last, the last 17 years digesting all the information that I can on the subject. That led me to discovering The Motley Fool about 14 years ago. I became a paying subscriber to them. I became very interested in the stock market. I made every mistake that you can possibly make with, uh, with investing when I, when I, when I first started. Um, and then about six years ago, because of my relationship with them, uh, they brought me on as a, as a contract writer. And one of my real passions in life is helping other people to manage their money better. So I try and do just that uh, on social media. And my primary outlets are Twitter and now YouTube. Very cool. Very cool. Well, thanks for, for sharing that. Yeah, we, um, you know, we're, we're in the same boat. We've made, you know, just about every mistake in the book, but that's what, you know, brought us to where we are today. Right. So, um, you know, so the first thing that I kind of want to talk about, Brian, is that you're well known for your investing checklist that you share openly with everybody. Can you spend some time just explaining, you know, your process and what you look for? I just find it really intriguing. I watched your videos on you knowing absolutely nothing about a company and just starting a deep dive. And can you just talk about that process a little bit? Sure. So I'm a big proponent of individual stock investing. That is my favorite style of investing. I don't claim that it's the best. I just claim that I particularly like it for myself. As a member, a longtime member of The Motley Fool, 
Um, once you get into investing, you just have tons of ideas that are thrown at you. Just an incredible amount of stocks that you could, could buy. If you've paid attention at all over the last 24 months, a huge number of companies have come public via IPO, direct listings, via SPACs, and all of them sound awesome. All of them. If any management team is doing its job, you should be interested in the company just by reading their presentation. Prior to coming up with a checklist, I was trying to keep everything in my head. I was trying to say, well, should I buy this stock? It's got a great management team and high inside ownership. Or should I buy this stock? I love the gross margin. and I think the moat is, is bigger. Or should I buy this stock? Yes, it's small today, but the opportunity is massive. And again, I was doing all of this in my head. It just became overwhelming. Finally, I, I, I realized maybe I should write this down. Maybe I should come up with a list of the attributes that I am looking for in an investment. And just as importantly, make another list that is all the attributes that I don't want in an investment. Then I posted that information publicly on the Motley Fool's discussion boards, which are this thriving community of investors that are trying to help other investors. And after revisions and tons of feedback, I've refined the list to what it is today. And just to give a quick overview, it is a zero to 100 point scale that I can take any company and go through top to bottom. And it, I ask questions along, along the way, like, what does the balance sheet look like? What is the gross margin? Is it profitable? How wide do I think its moat is? What's its long-term potential? Who is the management team? Does it have recurring revenue, et cetera? At the end of that process, it spits out a score between one and 100, higher being better. After that's done, I then take it through this thesis busting checklist that I just call the gauntlet. And it checks for essentially all the landmines that I've hit investing myself such as if a company has accounting irregularities, you're done. You're dead to me. I don't want to own you, period. I don't care how good everything else looks. If I can't trust the numbers, forget it. Right. Um, I also check for things like customer concentration. I don't like it when a company gets all or most of their revenue from one or two customers. That, that's one single point of failure. I check for things like, is the industry being disrupted? Is there an outside force such as commodity prices or interest rates or a strong stock market that this company needs to be successful? Is dilution high? Are they growing by acquisition, et cetera? From there, I subtract points. After all that's done, I get a score for, from my system. And that gives me a rough idea of how high quality that business is and how aligned that investment is with my principles. From there, I buy the highest quality ones that I can find and I ignore everything else. Okay. All right. So, I mean, just you personally, how, you know, how many individual stocks do you usually hold at one time in your portfolio? Right now, I have somewhere around 70, uh, I would guess, which that might seem like I'm extremely diversified. Uh, however, while I own 70 stocks, I'm more concentrated than it might appear. My top 20 holdings are probably somewhere around 70% of the, the, total, the total value. Uh, so I am a big fan of buying lots and lots of, lots of stocks, anything that I think uh, fits my criteria. However, I then let my winners run and I add to my winners again and again and again. And over time, my biggest winners 
occupy the largest position in my portfolio and the companies that I was wrong about, which happens all the time, essentially fade away into obscurity. Yeah. And I think that's something, you know, that's one of my, one of my favorite quotes in our industry is let your winners run and keep adding to your winners and then, you know, cut your losers short. But that's just such a backward thinking process for most people. You know, you know, so, people, so many people are, are so scared of buying stocks when they make an all time high. But it's like, you know, you look at, you know, for example, all these tech stocks like Amazon, Google, you know, if you bought them at all time highs 10 years ago, you know, they've 10 X, 15 X from where they were, you know, how do we get people to flip that mindset instead of buying stocks on the cheap, trying to catch a falling knife? Like most people are taught, you know, how do we get people in the mindset that it's okay to buy things that are going up and making all time highs? That depends on the individual person. I can tell you that when I started investing, I thought the only thing that mattered was a low share price. That's wrong. I thought the only thing that mattered was a high dividend yield. That's wrong. I thought that the only thing that mattered was a low PE ratio. That's wrong. So the only reason I know to believe exactly what you said, which is you should be shopping on the all the all-time high list is a better shopping ground than the all-time low list. That is so backwards to what you would think because as consumers, we're trained to go and look for bargains. You go to the grocery store, you don't say, yes, grapes are $5 a pound this week and they were $2 last week. We should buy some. Like That is just completely backwards. But when it comes to investing, so many of the most important principles are counterintuitive and they just take time training and well, tons of mistakes for you to internalize them, or at least that's what it took for me. That's great. Well, Brian, on Twitter, you pinned a tweet you sent back in April about your mission to spread financial wellness. That's something that Mark and I talk a lot about on this podcast. So can you elaborate a little bit more on that topic? Sure. So first off, I am a huge proponent of mission statements. Most people my former self included, when they hear mission statement, their brain turns off. They automatically think corporate nonsense, right? It's like, this is but something- that's what they use it for. It's, it's put on the HR website, mentioned once, never talked about again. And so many companies, especially big older companies, have mission statements that are corporate nonsense. So when I, when I, the reason that I'm such a big proponent of mission statements is that if you are a mission driven, if you are a mission driven uh, person, a mission statement can be a North star that not only aligns all of the stakeholders around that mission, but it dramatically simplifies decision-making. For example, my mission statement is to spread financial wellness. I picked every word with extreme care. And it actually took me a matter of months to, to come up with that. It doesn't seem like that when it's just like, really? Four words? Took you months to, to come up with? But it's really easy to screw up mission statements. But when I'm making decisions about what I should do with my career, the thing I ask myself is, does this decision spread financial wellness? If the answer is yes, I do it. Or I at least put it on a list of future things to do. If the answer is no, I don't do it. It's amazing how, how, how much a well-crafted mission statement can really simplify what you, what you do. I made my mission statement to spread financial wellness because I think that financial wellness is an incredibly important topic. Money affects 
every aspect of our lives. And yet it is a taboo subject. That is weird. That is so weird. I grew up in a household where we didn't really talk about money. My parents were good with money, but they just never talked about it. And if I went to like school and asked my teachers, how much money do you make? Or let's talk about like, I would be, I would be shut down. And I know that so many other people have that exact same, same thing. Yet when we graduate, we're just magically supposed to know how to do money the right way. And obviously, if you look at the amount of credit card debt in, in, in this country, it's clear that so many people are getting their money wrong. Now, when people find me online, the typical way that they find me or the thing that they know me for is stock picking. And I'm a huge fan of stock picking. However, stock picking to me is like step 13. <laughs> and step one through 12 are way more important than it is to, to pick the right stock. So when I say financial wellness, what I mean is thinking about your entire financial life and getting your entire financial picture in, in order. Uh, for example, do you have a budget? Do you know how much money you're spending? Do you know how much money you're making? It's remarkable the number of people that don't know the answers to that very basic question. Do you know your net worth? Do you know how much, do you have the proper amount of insurance? Do you have an estate plan if you have, if you have kids? I mean, one question I ask everybody is, do you have a will? 90% of the people that I ask that question to, even those with kids, say, nope, never, never crossed my mind that I need to get one. Um, if you have kids, please go get a will. Yes, it sucks to pay a lawyer hundreds or thousands of dollars to get one, but that is financial wellness. So I believe that you should really take care of your personal finances first. That should be the primary focus for you. Pay off any, any debt that you have, build an emergency fund, develop your career, get a high savings rate, get your biggest costs under control. Only then are you ready to start investing. So that's why I'm such a big proponent of financial wellness and not just picking the best stocks. Yeah. And I think, you know, the obvious reason why everyone jumps to the investing first, because it's the, it's the sexiest, it's, it's the most fun. It gives you the most adrenaline, you know, when you're, when you're trying to pick stocks and that type of thing, but we preach the same thing. It's like, listen, you got to get your house in order way, way before we start even talking about investments. Right. Um, so we're, we're on the same page there. And then just one other follow-up question on the mission statement I was watching one of your videos on a deep dive on a company and you make an emphasis to, to find on the company's website, their mission statement. So how important of a factor is it for you that they have a very clear mission statement on their, their IR portion of their website? It is a part of my, of my process. And I do assign points to companies that, um, that, are very clear with their mission statement and regularly talk about it. That to me is something that I look for in, in an investment. If it takes effort to find a company's mission statement, that tells you something. That tells you that the company might not have one or their mission statement, their actual mission statement is probably to make management rich. And I'm not interested in investing in companies that's mission statement that's unsaid is just to make insiders uh, rich. I want a company that is trying to do something in the world. And the amazing thing is almost every entrepreneur founds a company because they're trying to do something. They see an opportunity, they, they see a problem and they want to, and they want to, to fix it. It's just that 
having a mission statement, again, is such a good stakeholder alignment tool. It gets suppliers, customers, employees, potential employees, investors, society, everybody gets on the same page and pointing towards the same goal. So the companies that are good at crafting mission statements, and equally importantly, actually living them out and communicating frequently, I view that as a big positive. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you there. Um, so we already touched, touched up about this a little bit here, Brian, but you know, there's a, there's a big misconception people have when investing in stocks and that's talking about the low, low price stocks that we talked about a little bit. And you set out a tweet, I think it was last week and you said a $10 stock doesn't double any faster than a thousand dollar stock. This is so counterintuitive. I used to think that low price stocks must produce higher returns than high price stocks, but that's not correct. Mercado Libre went from 850 to 1780 over the last 15 months, and Google went from 1300 to 2700 over the last 20 months. So, you know, how do we get, again, people to reverse the thinking to be able to, you know, not be afraid of buying just high priced shares? Again, this gets back to our consumer-driven mindset, where if you see something is $1,000 and something else that from the outside looks like the exact same thing, right? One stock is $1,000, another stock is $1. Which one's more expensive? It takes training to say, not enough information. <laughs> we need more Absolutely. information to determine which one is the, is the right stock. And again, I, I, I say things like this because this is a mistake that I made. When I first started investing, I exclusively bought stocks that were below $5 per share. The logic is, well, if a stock trades for a dollar, it just has to go up $1 for it to double my investment. But if a stock costs $1,000, it has to go up $1,000 for me to double my investment. And that is a logical, rational thing to assume. But again, the stock market is not the same thing as a, as a consumer good. The reason that people get so tripped up with that is because we are trained to the, the media, for example, is a lot of people's first exposure to the stock market. What does the media report? Price. Price. That's it. If you go on your phone, it's very easy to find out any stock price. What you don't see often, or you actually have to know to look for is market cap or even how many shares exist? That information you have to hunt for. And a lot of people, my former self included, don't even know that that's a thing. Like they don't even understand that market cap is what the real value of a company is, not the dollar price of, of one share. So that tweet was mostly designed to get people thinking in terms of market cap, growth rate, and long-term potential, and to de-emphasize the focus on, on one share. Because to your point, it's so intuitive to look at the share price and not look at the market cap. But investing has taught me market cap is a thousand times more important than just the price of one share. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because like, I, like you said, you know, people, we say market capitalization and you know, clients and you know, people we talk to that aren't in the industry, they look at us like we have three heads and they're like, market capitalization, what is, what is that? And it goes back to your point. I think this stuff needs to be taught in high school. It needs to be taught in college. It just boggles my mind still that we're at a point where we don't have personal finance classes being mandatory in schools. Um, and, and then the other point I want to make is, you know, a lot, I'm not saying all, but a lot of these low price stocks, their share price is very low for a reason, 
right? And I think people need to understand that. But, you know, again, just their rational thinking, not having a lot of experience, they're like, oh, it's cheap. You know, if it goes from $1 a share to $10 a share, then I'm a genius, right? Um, but I think, you know, obviously it's much more complex than that. But, and I, and I don't, I'm not talking down to people that, that have made that mistake because how else are they supposed to know? Like you said, the media is not helping out with that situation. So how else would they know if they're not in our industry? I have zero data to back up what I'm about to say, but I just know that it's true. Again, I have zero data to back this up. I would bet that if you took a portfolio of 500 stocks that traded under $5 per share and a portfolio of 500 stocks that traded over $100 per share, I would bet that the over $100 per share would dramatically outperform the under $5 per share. Again, I have zero data to back that up, but I just know it's true. Yeah, I agree. I'm with you. I'm smelling a future Motley Fool article, Brian. There you go. Hey, uh, Brian, we got one more I want to throw out there. Mark and I preach about this a lot in our podcast. You had a tweet recently, and I quote, you can't out-earn terrible spending habits. That was your tweet. What is your best advice for people who have a spending problem? If you have a spending problem, the first thing you need to do is track your spending. If you, have no, if you have no way of tracking your spending, it's very easy to convince yourself that you don't have a spending problem. I actually have worked with friends and family to do financial coaching uh, with them. And every single time, step one is always the same. Track your spending. And every single time, without fail, somebody says, wait, how much are we spending on restaurants? <laughs> Wait, how much are we spending on our phones or cable or whatever? And, and every single time, their behavior changes just because they actually have the data to look at. There it is. So if you, if you have a spending problem, step one is to just watch what you're doing. Step two is to ask yourself, okay, I'm spending blank on this category. Am I getting enough happiness and value out of spending on that category. I have friends that are foodies. They just love food. They just love restaurants. And that is like what they live for. They spend a lot on restaurants and I'm okay with that. I say that is a category that clearly brings you a lot of joy. Okay. If that's your category, what are you willing to give up in order to make sure you spend on that? You're spending thousands of dollars a year on vacations. Can we do vacations differently and cut back on that? Are you getting the value out of that? Or do you have to drive a really fancy brand new car? Can we drive a, do you value cars? So it's just about aligning your spending with your values. And again, start with tracking your spending. And I really put that tweet out there because I think we've all read the stories about celebrities or athletes that make millions, millions of dollars. And then within a period of months or years are broke. Uh, I just read, I think it was Evander Holyfield made $200 million and declared bankruptcy. That is, that, that's not uncommon. Like we see stories like that all the time. Hence the, hence the tweet, you can't out earn bad spending habits. If you are living this unbelievably, if you're spending $10 million a year, and, and, and you're only making $8 million a year. $8 million a year is a huge number, but you're still out spending your, your, your earnings. So, and then you could apply that up and down, right? If you're making 
$100,000 a year, you can't spend $120,000 uh, forever. So no matter what you, no matter what you're, you're, you're making, you always have to spend less period. Yeah, I agree. And you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of, I don't know if you're familiar with his work, Ramit Satif and uh, you know, his things on about, you know, spend money on things that you love that make you happy and then just cut back on the other stuff. And I think that's such a simple concept that not a lot of people have tried before, because obviously, you know, if that, $5 Starbucks latte just lights up your day and starts your day right. And you love that, then go ahead and keep doing that. You know, and you know, I don't, I don't subscribe to the, the Susie Orman theory that, you know, you can't buy coffee out and it, you know, all of that. So if it makes you happy, then do it. But like you said, you just have to realize, you know, you're going to have to cut back in certain areas too. But I think that's just a good place to start when you're thinking about a budget rather than, going right to the numbers and be like, okay, how much is my deficit or how much is my surplus? Because when, when you say budget, people like cringe, it's like a cringe effect. Right. So I think if you lead with, you know, we want to talk about you spending money on things that you love. I think it's a lot easier of a conversation. And the other thing that I'll say is that Matt and I on the podcast all the time talk about, you know, in our opinions, the biggest lever that you have to increase your ability to meet your financial goals is your savings rate, right? And your savings rate and your spending rate obviously go hand in hand. So I think, you know, the, the most important thing people need to understand is, you know, it's not picking a stock that could go up by a thousand percent. It's increasing your saving rate over a long period of time is really going to get you to where you need to be for your financial goals, in my opinion. And Brian, we preach, we preach this all the time in the podcast. It's Mark's quote, focus on what you can control. And so many times people are focusing on the things they can't control. And I think that's another big area. Totally agree. And Ramit Sethi is one of my favorite uh, financial thinkers right now. And one of the things that uh, he taught me to do is always ask, is this a $500 decision or a $500,000 decision, right? If you get your housing right, if you get your transport right, and if you get your food right, buy all the Starbucks you want, right? right? Meanwhile, if your housing costs are crazy, your car costs are crazy, and your food costs are crazy, uh, you can't afford anything beyond right. that. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So one last uh, question for you. So you're a University of Rhode Island grad, a fellow A-10 rival of the Dayton Flyers. So who do you think wins the A-10 this year in basketball? Obviously, you are I. I don't pay much attention to college sports, so I will root for Dayton. Go Dayton. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I like that. Um, well, Brian, we really appreciate your time today. Um, again, love your work. Um, you know, where can listeners go if they want to check you out more other than Twitter, the Motley Fool? I know you have a YouTube page. Yeah. Uh, the easiest place to find me is on Twitter. I'm at Brian Feraldi. And uh, we're recently putting a lot of time into my YouTube channel. To your point, if you're interested in learning about my checklist or my investing process, I lay it out all for you right there. And we actually take viewer suggestions about stocks that they want us to run that process through. So we always love finding stocks that we've never heard of before and researching them live. So if that sounds interested, check it out. All right. All right, Brian, well, you have a great weekend and thanks again for coming on. Anytime. Take thanks care, for having me.
Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors Podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.